Catch new episodes of Dial the Gate weekends at youtube.com slash dialthegate. And for the latest schedule, visit dialthegate.com. Welcome to Dial the Gate. My name is David Reed, and this is episode 31. We are very fortunate to have back uh, executive producer and writer Joseph Malazzi of Stargate SG-1, Stargate Atlantis, Stargate Universe. We will be bringing him in in just a moment here. But first, before I do so, let me just go ahead and pull up. Uh, some information here. If you enjoy Stargate and you want to share and see more content like this available on uh, YouTube, please consider clicking that like button. And there is uh, uh, several options here for you available to submit information regarding uh, uh, this series to your friends and to anyone who's in your immediate sphere, who is a uh, Stargate fan. Please consider subscribing as well for future episodes, and we will be uh, releasing new content every single week in the new year as well. So what's going to happen in this particular episode is I'm going to uh, bring in Joe and all my fonts are screwed. You know, if, if anything could uh, go wrong in this episode, it absolutely is. Now all my fonts are screwed up. <laughs> I appreciate Joe's patience. Let's, you know what? Let's just go ahead and bring him in here. Hello, Mr. Malazzi. <laughs> you seem to be having a rough day. I, I am having an interesting morning. So mm-hmm. um, we just we just did a I just found out how YouTube uh, programs all of the uh, live shows and it depends on the computer's time zone. So and, and mm-hmm. unfortunately, you pulled the lucky number in, in me figuring this one out. So I really appreciate uh, you uh, working with me on this one here. So no I have been looking forward to talking with you for a while about this particular season, season five hmm. for a very long time. It was uh, my favorite. There was just really, yes, because it had a mixture of everything that was really great about the show in it. And I think a large part of that is you were beginning to pull together threads I mean, season two really started doing that, pulling pulling threads from season one, obviously. But season five had this perfect mixture of past threads and future story ideas all rolled into one season. And I think, you know, you, you did a great job of introducing Anubis. And unfortunately, uh, uh, if, I must, if I must be honest, a great job of killing off a lot of our allies. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> how does how do you feel about SG One season five? Looking back on the body of work, your sophomore season. Yeah, you know it's funny you, you mentioned the mix because, you know, I remember at the end of season four. I think season four was a tough season for us uh, because Paul and I were always. I mean, most of the stories we wrote were really. I think all of them were really um, uh, one-off, self-contained stories that really had not that much to do with what had come before um and i remember at the end of the season paul and i sitting in my office 
you know, talking about season five and what the heck will we do for season five? Because we were so tapped out of ideas. We had, you know, the cupboard was bare. Um, but one of the things that we realized in season five was that rather than come up with those wholly original ideas, there was a wealth of, That's right. you know, previous stories to tap and, you know, uh, the mythology and, and, and the relationships that had been established in, in the previous four seasons. So that's why, you know, I, I, it made me think of that when you just said that the series was really a mix of, you know, a bit of old, a bit of new, um, and, 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 you know, it was just very, very storylines. And that's something we always loved about Stargate, the fact that we could tell different types of stories, not just tonally, but also in terms of having connections to the past mythology or something, you know, introducing something completely new. When you realized that you could tap into the resources that you had built into um, season four and tap into the resources that had been paved before you had arrived, Mm -hmm. what stories uh, were you really interested in telling when that first became a possibility to you? You know, I, off the top of my head, I, I, I don't really recall if there was a specific story, but I remember kind of doing the deep dive into, I mean, we, I mean, we were familiar with the show, obviously, before landing on season four and we've done our research, but we did more of a deep dive um, in between seasons four and five. And, and specifically with, re- with regard to the mythology. Um, so, I mean, that, that kind of appealed. Um, I mean, the tomb was an interesting one. And that, you know, even though, even though the connection to, to the past mythology was tenuous, still in kind of a big picture uh, view, um, it, it was a great opportunity. And, and you know, invariably, it would always be a, a, a matter of, you know, we would think about storylines. And I, I would always think, you know, what about how come we've never explored, you know, and one of the things that fans kept on coming up with was, you know, what about the Chinese? What about the Russians? Do they, you know... You know, are they in pursuit of their own gay program? So this was an opportunity to introduce uh, a Russian team, which was kind of fun. Yeah, you know, that that idea of just um, the Asgard mothership just bailing out into the, the Pacific Ocean really mm. was the spawn. That incident at the end of season three really was the spawn of of much. Uh, I mean, it leads to the Atlantis expedition. It leads to F- mm-hmm. the IOA. You know, yeah. that that first initial exposure of of the Russians to the Stargate program. And in season five, we finally learn that they did their own thing and it didn't yeah. go so well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to get I want to get to the tomb in just a minute here. And I want to remind um, those who are in the YouTube audience, submit your questions for Joseph Malazzi. Now, uh, my uh, moderating team is. uh uh, Ian today and Ian thank you for uh, thank you for uh, uh, being there for us in there uh, it doesn't the questions for Joe don't have to be about season five but my line of questions are today you you open up um, the season uh, with a story by credit for enemies and this episode it looks like um, let's see who this this episode it says it the writing credits um, it says the teleplay was by Rob. Mm -hmm. So when a situation, okay. uh, Fill me in on the little, the little story by teleplay thing, uh, teleplay teleplay by thing. So the story came from, from, well, you, you all of you, because 
You know, it rarely happens, to be honest with you. Whenever you get in a room and you, um, as a group of writers, and you spin a story, mm -hmm. whoever gets assigned the story writes the script. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very, very rare. I mean, it does occasionally happen when someone just will come in with like a, a, a fully fleshed out idea uh, and, uh, and pitch it and they'll get a, a, a teleplay credit. Usually that, that, that more often happens with the freelancer when they'll come in and, 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 uh, and pitch an idea and, and maybe they're not able to write the teleplay. Um, in this case, it was actually a very interesting uh, scenario because we, I believe we, we spun this, we, we didn't even spin the story, but actually Paul and I came up with the idea and we wrote an outline and we got notes. And one of the notes from Rob was, I forget what it was, what it, exactly it was, but in terms of the timing of something happening in the script. And so we went back and tried to do address his note and we weren't able to address it. He's like, no, no, you have to do this. And, and Paul and I kind of got grew frustrated and we were like, you know what? You kind of have a firm idea of what you want to do. So why don't you write the teleplay? And so it was our story because we had basically gone through various permutations, but Rob wrote the teleplay. And I have to say what's interesting about the teleplay is that the note he gave that we were unable to accomplish was something that he realized when he was writing the teleplay uh, either didn't make sense or he couldn't do. So uh, <laughs> that's, the same that, brick that's wall for him. That's the story. So I completely forgot about that story um, until now you mention it. But that was the scenario. You know that I love this episode. Uh, this this two parter Exodus and Enemies are some of, of the best that you guys did. The Vorash Sun explodes, mm -hmm. and through a quirk of hyperspace travel, we find ourselves on the other side of the universe, and we've we've we're stuck with Apophis. And mm -hmm. there, are, I think the the more mortifying thing is that there are replicators that far out. So yeah. God knows how many galaxies they have absolutely just wiped out i'm convinced if universe had continued we would have found more replicators <laughs> i think that i think that just the fate of of earth would have just been always to encounter those guys at some point or another because i mean rob cooper pointed out with us you know they're harmless fun and killing it's like it's you're <laughs> like in a video game exactly. so, did you approach um I'm I'm curious about this particular season when you when you sent SG One across the universe with with Jacob in this lone uh, mothership. Did did you know that they that you were going to knock Apophis off in that first episode and have Teal go rogue and have replicators back, or was this you know what? Let's just put them at the corner of the universe. We'll deal with it next year. Now somehow I doubt that last part. Yeah, no, we had kind of had a, a, we usually have a pretty good idea of where we're going to go. I mean, we, it, it really depends on, uh, I mean, it went from season to season in terms of how detailed we were in our game plan, but usually we would know where we were headed. Okay. Yeah. And the, so what was it like uh, having Apophis finally, truthfully, 99% be dead? Yeah, you know, villain. Yeah, it, it. I guess it didn't land with uh, uh, as hard enough on Paul and I as as uh, I'm sure everyone else because we joined in season four. Mm -hmm. 
Right. And he, um, I forget, was did Apocalypse even put in an appearance in season four? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did. But it was it, it was really minimal. It was only like two or three yeah. episodes. Yeah. So it it was. So, but I mean, yeah. I mean, it it it. I I don't believe it was something that we would have pitched. Um, just because you know he he's such an established villain that uh, um, Brad and Robert had laid so much groundwork for. Um, but then again, I mean, in the back of my mind, I always assumed, as I always say, this is science fiction, and no one ever stays dead in science fiction. That's right. Uh, you, you stay dead for as long as uh, you know. I, I'm out of ideas for your character. <laughs> if, if, I, if I come up with like, like a brilliant ah storyline, then. Uh, um, you know, all bets are off. But in the case of, although, I mean, Apophis did end up, even though he's dead, he did, Peter did come back for several uh, appearances later on down the line. Um, and With certain sci-fi Peter, twists, Peter, Apophis Prime was basically gone. Right, right, right. Yeah. But, I mean, Peter was amazing in the role. I love the, the character uh, of Apophis. And, you know, the fact that um, we killed him off for good, shall we say, really was more sort of a reflection on the fact that we had so many other story lines, you know, in, in the works and, and so much other uh, ideas to tap from, from, from the past. I mentioned the mythology that, um, um, you know, we, we had that freedom to kind of open things up. I think that there is something delicious from a story perspective. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's insidious from an, real life perspective of course but i think that there is something really delicious about um apophis always saying to till more or less over the course of you know four or five seasons you know when i get my hands on you <laughs> we we think that he's gonna he's gonna just keep killing him and like a la yeah. ball with o'neill again and again instead he turns him around and yeah. it's like whoa because i remember watching i was like well, I didn't expect that. Yeah. <laughs> what was that? Well, that's good. That's good. <laughs> exactly. That. Was that a uh, 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 subversion of the audience expectations? Ones that was like, well, you know what? If we're going to go this far, if we're going to if we're going to go in this direction, let's at least have Apophis go out having done something that affects Tilk in at least the yeah. next episode. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely, you always want to subvert our audience expectations. And often it's very hard to do. Uh, But, you know, in this case, you would think, what is the most uh, impactful thing that our villain can do? And obviously, it's something that would have um, certainly lasting consequences, but consequences, as you said, beyond that episode. And and the fact that it would affect one of our regulars so deeply and, and as a result, you know, end up affecting those he cared about. Uh, so it, it, I, do, I don't remember who came up with that idea. It was either Brad or Robert, but it was uh, it was a just a, really a terrific uh, little twist. It wouldn't surprise me if it was Brad because of just what he does with it. He makes a meal of that. Mm-hmm, Brad mm-hmm. does in Threshold. Mm-hmm. What an extraordinary mm-hmm. hour of television! Yeah, Chris, yeah. Chris, and and Tony still talk about that one to this day. Oh yeah, it was, it was so cool seeing their backstory because in season five of like any typical other show, even to this day, you'd be like season five. We're kind of finally getting to the backstory, the, the significant yeah. backstory of mm-hmm. of how Teal became a a rebel. And boy, do those actors eat it up! And yeah. there's some marvelous, some marvelous scenes between those guys in that show. Yeah, and and poor Chris having to lie down shirtless in the snow. 
Exactly. His, yeah. his poor nipples are so frozen <laughs> in his back. Oh gosh, that was so funny. Um, but I I love this opening show in that it also subverts our expectations about seeing the replicators this quickly again. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the visual effects, at least the um the movement of the camera. Martin Wood, it appears, you know, at this point, has never had more freedom to just to just run backwards through the hallway with SG One. Yeah, yeah. Replicators coming around all corners, and it looks, at least for the time, yeah. it still, still holds up pretty well today. But it looks so good. Is that the episode with, where where he brings them into the elevator and the doors? Yeah, and, right. We get we get to see what it what happens when you use the ring transporters. That right, whole right. sequence is is yeah. one of the best in the entire franchise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So just, yeah, just I mean, it's funny, actually, I, I, uh, I just did a, a uh, kind of a video panel with uh, Martin Wood uh, on Monday. And, and I mentioned the fact that he was our action go to guy. And, and, you know, he, he just tore it up. It was it was it was a great show and a solid uh, entrance into a brand new season of television. Um, mm. You went on to do uh the fifth man yes dion uh johnson yes one of the one of the best uh recurring actors that you guys had uh, absolutely where did the idea for the fifth man come from that was an idea that paul pitched and i remember we pitched he pitched it in the room and and then brad was like ah, this is i think similar to an episode of star trek uh, and I mean, I, I and I, think I was, I, yeah, I, I was, I, I was familiar with the original Star Trek. Mm. Like I never got into uh, next gen just because I found mm. the uniforms didn't fit right. It is an odd thing <laughs> to, 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 to basically be turned off by. I was like, oh, like kind of good. um, you do have to stare but, at him but, a lot. <laughs> yeah. But Brad watched it. And so we're like, you know, okay. He's like, as long as it's, you know, we, we do our own thing. Right. Because it would always, that would always be the case. We would always pitch something and be like, oh, you know, either we did it, uh, in seasons one to three or Star Trek already did it. So it was very rare. We would find something that was, uh, not, uh, you know, it was, uh, uh, something totally original. Um, but this, apparently the, the, the basic premise had echoes of the Star Trek episode, but, uh, but of course we made it our own. Um, and, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, uh, uh, Dion is, is a fantastic actor who, you know, comes back uh, later as an Unas, and uh, um, you know, just just a, a you know one of I think one of Vancouver's very best. We we had the privilege of talking with him on GateWorld a few years ago, and he just mm-hmm. ate up the roles that you guys that you guys created for him. It mm-hmm. was it was so uh, we. we... We rarely get exposed to uh, non-humanoid species uh, this yeah. this early yeah. on in SG One, and I remember the Riol uh, in talking with Bruce Willashen was one of uh, Rainmaker's first chances to do a creature, mm-hmm. and it was one of the more exotic ones that you guys did, and it's it, it's it's a really really great technical achievement and also just yeah. a really cool sci-fi idea that you've got this species that makes. If you if it's near you, you're you are manipulated into thinking that it's an ally. Mm-hmm, it's an interesting mm-hmm. camouflage idea. Yeah, yeah. And it was a powerhouse for Rick 
Rick had a had some great scenes with with Dion. Yeah. Actually, fifth season was um, this, and I think Red Sky is uh, yes follows soon after are, are two of Rick's greatest I think uh, performances on the series, and they happen yeah, to occur back to back. They do indeed. And Red Sky was uh, written by Ron Wilkerson. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Was that so? Ron, I don't see that name come up very much. Was that was that someone who uh, pitched an individual episode, or how does that? I, you know, we were always looking to add to to the staff, but it was always very, very, a very, very tricky show to get. Um, you know, I, I mentioned before the fact that uh, it was really not a reflection on one skill as as a writer. You either get it or you don't. I mean, for instance, I watched. Uh, uh, um, Queen's Gambit recently on Netflix. Mm. And I was like, that's a great show. I personally would not be the guy to be in that writer's room. Uh, but, you know, I thought it was, it was terrific, but it's the same way with, with Stargate. We would reach out and, 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 and try out um, writers more from the not. They just didn't work out. And in the case of Ron, I believe, I don't know how he came to us, but he pitched. And um, I think, Maybe Red Sky was was his pitch. I think he went through the same process that we did with um, uh, uh, our um, our first uh, episode. That we pitched the idea, they liked it. We talked it through. We wrote. He wrote the outline. Mm-hmm. We gave notes on the outline, and then he delivered a first draft that we thought was strong enough to warrant acceptance into the cabal. So uh, he uh, <laughs> he. Uh, you know, he delivered on that and then became a part of the uh, writer's room for uh, for the fifth season. And, uh, yeah. Okay, so he was, you recall him being there for the full fifth season? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, definitely. I'm going to want to reach out to him for sure. Yeah. It's, it's I, my... I just remember, actually, the one Ron story uh, uh, I do remember is actually later in the season, he came in and he was having a really tough time with uh, one of the episodes, one of the scripts, and I don't know what it was. But we were in Rob's room and we were talking and he had a script down on the on the uh, on on the couch. And then John Lennock, who was our, uh, our line producer, his dog came in, jumped up on the couch and peed on Ron's script. And Ron jumps up and like shouts, John, your dog's peeing all over my script. And Rob followed up with, well, in all fairness, we've all been doing that. God, jeez, man! True, crazy, true story. Oh gosh, his his writing credits for season five, Red Sky, Between Two Fires, Proving yeah. Ground, and The Sentinel. Yeah. Oh gosh, man. <laughs> oh man. So the uh, the next one that that you guys put out was The Tomb. Yes. That was a lot of fun. sets. Yeah. So actually, well, not exactly, but like, like the bricks and the, the tunnels yeah. were like built like them. Yes. Yes. So, yes. Not exactly repurposed, but certainly in the uh, space. visually. Yes. Very similar. Claustrophobic episode. Like a I love really that. Creepy yes. show. Talk about the tomb. Um, you know, as I mentioned, we just came up with the idea, you know, more often than not the story question, the, the story ideas come come about as a result of questions like why haven't we um, 
learn more about what the Russians are up to or the Chinese are up to, you know, are they aware of the Stargate program? What, what steps are they taking towards acquiring uh, technology? And so we introduced this Russian team. And it's interesting, one of the actors, uh, Jennifer Holly, and I mentioned this in, in season four, um, she auditioned for the role of uh, a character who originally in the script was titled Jennifer Holly, and then my writing partner changed it because he said, Jen Jennifer Holly sounds like a nonsense name. It should be Jennifer Haley. And uh, but an actress named Jennifer Holly auditioned for 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 uh, that particular episode didn't get the role. So I thought of her because I you know it was I loved meant her to audition. be. Yeah. So we uh, brought her back, and and she was in uh, the tomb. And you introduce Colonel Chekhov in this episode as yes. well. Gary Chalk, yes. fantastic, yes, he, amazing. Actor. He is. He is terrific. You, uh, he only has. I think he only has one scene at at the end of the show. When when you create these characters, are you sometimes surprised at their longevity in the long term? It's like, man, I didn't think we'd get this much mileage out of this guy. But yeah. in, in in the scheme of things, he just he just fit the bill. It it always occurs. I mean, the best example of that I think is is uh, Robert Picardo's Woolsey. Yes, uh, a character who's introduced as really just kind of a thorn in in SG one side. And then, you know, you, you, you can't help but love uh, Bob and his portrayal. And so uh, the Woolsey character starts off as, a you know, just a pain in the butt. And then slowly over time transforms into, you know, kind of a, a more kind of amusing character to the point. And then ultimately after he takes over command of the uh, Stargate, of the Atlantis expedition, um, kind of redeem him. And so his character almost comes... I want to say full circle. It's more like 180, really. Uh, <laughs> He's. It's like what you guys did with McKay. Um, yes. Oh, that's actually, want, that is actually the best example. You you, you, yeah. you don't want to get rid of his edge. His edge is Correct. still there, but at at the same time, he's he's someone that you can at least you know from from not being able to tolerate being in the room at all to being yeah. like you know what I accept these these character flaws of you because you're such. Uh, a great asset to the team. Yeah. You know? And, and honestly, you get to know them. You get to see the other side. And so really the, the, the side that you were introduced to in the beginning is still there, but you know, it, it you kind of qualify those, uh, those uh, annoyances, if you will. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and Gary's uh, with uh, Colonel Chekhov is one that, you know, eventually gets his due by blowing up aboard the Coral Lab. <laughs> Right. Whose idea was it? Uh, it, And I think it's still officially the worst way to go. Getting put inside of a sarcophagus with a creature that wants to and is is actively eating you and feeding (laughs) off of you while the sarcophagus is trying to keep you alive. Yeah, I I don't recall. I mean, it was either Paul or I, but I, I, you know, I remember thinking... You're absolutely right. That is, I can't think of a worse way. The worst way to prolonged go. pain. Yes, yes, that is absolutely the worst way to go. <laughs> and that the ghoul would think, okay, yeah. you know what? I'm just going to have to jump ship and just go ahead and go inside of a lower. I mean, it, it, the the ghoul can take a, a other creatures as hosts if they have to. Mm-hmm. They just mm-hmm. choose not to. Mm-hmm. So that was also creepy as well. That I mean, it's it's suggestive that these things could be in anything. Yeah. So yeah. and what a cool creature. Ken Rebel yes. did a wonderful design on that. Yes. Squid like yeah. and spider like. 
I do. You know, I've, I've always liked the uh, squid-like uh, elements or characteristics of, 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 of alien creatures, whether it's, you know, uh, Geiger's alien or the kind of stuff we did on, on our show. I mean, it wasn't just this, but uh, various Time. times. Even, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the squid's yeah. there. So, and then yeah. Taylor eats something similar in uh, yeah, Missing. Yeah, yeah. So. Space gopher. Space yeah. gopher. <laughs> That's yes. right. Desperate Measures. Oh, yeah. This is an episode where we posit what if a a person with unlimited resources and uh, knowledge of uh, uh, state secrets like the Stargate program, what if he had the ability to uh, get a hold of a ghoul to save his own life? Mm -hmm. What ends Mm -hmm. would you go to? To manipulate yeah. a situation and take advantage of other human beings, capture them, one, imprison yeah. them, study them yeah. to extend your own life. Yeah. One could almost ask what desperate measures would one take to prolong one's life? Yes. There's a there's a a sick yet and twisted yet darkly like sympathetic quality to this character in Bill Merchant's mm-hmm. Adrian Conrad. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think it's only fitting, you know, when he does become a ghoul that, you know, it ends as badly as it does for yeah, him. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to figure out how to... T- no, let's go for the full yeah. way here. Um, yeah. And and that that uh, you're, you're, you're again going back on uh, a previous story arc with, with Carter and, yeah. and Jolinar. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Was... Did that episode... Uh, turn out in any way that you uh, that you didn't expect. I mean, and it also it, it also continues the the ongoing story, the ongoing adventures of 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 Harry and Jack. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I love that relationship, and and, and, and it, it's always a, it was always a pleasure to write those two. Um, and and they would have like a sort of a, you know uh, Tom and and, and uh, Rick would always have a really good time playing off each other. Um, in terms of, of, of the show, actually, I think the episode pretty much, ex, you know, delivered on, on on what we imagined, except for the fact that we ended up something ridiculous, like like thirty seconds short. So there's that so there's that sequence when they're searching the hospital that seems to go on for maybe a little too long. Maybe would you say thirty seconds too long? Uh, but otherwise. You know, it. Uh, I think it turned out pretty well. I always wonder. It, 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 sometimes there are there are episodes, and it's 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 rare. You know, this early on in Stargate, but in in a lot of like more modern shows, um, there are episodes that have that that are built back to back. And one of the advantages of of having a serialized story is that you can go back and retell certain parts of it again. I always wonder if that's if that's secretly, you know, a time-saving or time-extending uh, uh, technique where, you know what, we really didn't actually film this much. So let's actually show a little bit more of this past episode because it actually does have to do with this this plot and fill in that time so that we can hit the minute mark that we need to. Um, it rarely happens, but okay. I'm sure it does happen on occasion. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Wormhole extreme oh yeah willie garson returns yes as martin lloyd 
and you know it's it's the 100th episode bash yeah what was that atmosphere like hitting that milestone at the studio um and you know uh, up in uh, yeah at bridge studios not mgm yeah no i mean obviously it was very exciting um you know, Paul and I joined in, in the fourth season. So again, it wasn't as impactful for right. us, but I mean, it was obviously like a huge deal for everyone. And, uh, you know, we uh, consider ourselves fortunate to be able to write the 100th episode, um, you know, but you, again, even though Paul and I wrote it, we were all in the room and, and, you know, you just can't help but have fun with this particular episode. And I think on one of my blogs or multiple blog entries, I just kind of went over all like the in-jokes that that um, pepper this, this uh, oh, man. episode. There's a lot of them and all the cameos. I remember we made um, Ken Cohen, who was, who was a vice president of uh, MGM Television. Um, we gave him a cameo. He's, I think he wanted a cameo. And we gave him the line. I think he, he's, he's about to get into like a car and, and his line is something like, uh, what this show needs is the sexy female alien. And um, we gave him that line because in season four, that's one of the things that he pitched. I, in fact, that's, that's, I think, an exact quote from him. <laughs> he was like, what this show needs. And then I got to, uh, to uh, uh, express outrage about the fact that uh, – um, there were no donuts left at the uh, craft services, and, and Raw played a kind of a harried writer. Rob Cooper played a harried Just writer. Do it the way it was in the script. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Deloise was great in that. Yeah. So yeah. you know, Peter is all. Peter was an actor first, I believe. Yeah. You know, was. I'm a huge Sequest fan here, uh, yeah. and it was so. The the franchise always, well, SG One in particular, it really seemed like a Deloise tour de force. Because you had pretty much everyone in that family, except for, except for uh, uh, Peter's mother, as far as mm-hmm. <laughs> and 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 the kids, uh, their their grandkids uh, in that show. Um, mm-hmm. We we brought they brought in Michael to play uh, uh, Jack O'Neill's part. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. we had uh, what was it like having Willie Garson back? Um, you know, I love, I love Willie in, in Point of No Return, and so. Um, you know, it's great to have all these funny ideas, similar to 200, where, you know, where everybody's spinning ideas, but you need some sort of a framework to hang all these ideas off of. And, uh, and then, you know, Willie became the guy and he became the guy in 200 as well. Uh, and he's just a great, uh, comic actor and, uh, just really great timing and, you know, really got along well with Rick. Um, and so it was just, you know, it was a pleasure to have him back. And it, it just, again, you, you know, w- once again, if you can pay off something that has come before, the fans really appreciate. Absolutely. This episode, this season was the last season that you were on Showtime. Mm-hmm. So throughout the season, you guys were, I, I imagine, like, in in your headspace, preparing, you know, to be unemployed and and yeah. be out there at the breadline again. This, this was going to be it. This was the end. When was the? I, I'm preempting this a little bit here. But when was mm-hmm. uh, the pickup for season six realized? Were you still in in production of season five? We were still in production. You were. Uh, I remember. Yeah, I remember walking. Brad calling us into the office and uh, 
And he, he, he was like, what would you guys think about a season six? And we we're like, what? how is that possible? I thought we're only doing five seasons on Showtime. He's like, well, apparently sci-fi has picked the show up for a sixth and final season. So we're like, oh, well, great. We receive a reprieve. So we'll do one more season. And, and Brad was like, look, you know, but this is it. You know, it, it, it's, it's great. So, uh, you know, let, you know, let's make the most of it. You're going throughout uh, the season and as far as I mean, we we do say you know there was always like a movie plan. There was always a movie in the works. But yeah. I, I was, from my knowledge, reading the news articles and everything else that was that were published at that time, the mm. intent was to do some kind of a feature at the end of mm-hmm. season five because you're setting up Anubis. You weren't just going to yeah. end the show and have Anubis out there. You mm-hmm. know, it was going to be some kind of a lost city kind of beginning to to pull the pieces together from uh, solitudes and and that gate that was found at uh, the Arctic uh, mm-hmm. and uh, the the Antarctic rather. And you you're you're systematically eliminating our allies throughout this season. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was that a mandate going into season five to to make Earth as isolated as possible? I. I don't know if it was necessarily a mandate. I mean, like, as you said, we were working towards a series finale. And, you know, if in, in working towards a series finale, you just kind of want to wrap up as many storylines as possible. And that's, Stargate it, it, had so many ongoing storylines that you were never going to wrap them all up in satisfactory fashion. Um, and you're absolutely right. There was always, you know, the thought of doing a movie, but, uh, a full season is even better. So um, sure. I forget at what point in the season we 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 realized we were coming back. Um, but I mean, obviously the the finale revelation was written as a series as a season finale rather than a series finale. When um, Meridian was was conceived, hmm. was that with knowledge that Michael would not be joining for season six? Yes, to the best of my knowledge, that was the case. You know, that is exactly what I thought of uh, when you just mentioned the fact, when did we know? And um, yes, I mean, the fact that he decided to leave. I mean, I remember he had had the conversation with Brad and Brad was like, well, you know, the door is always open if you want to come and play. Um, So, you know, remembering that, leads me to believe that, uh, you know, by, at the point we were writing Meridian, we knew we were coming back. Okay. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons that I think those last few episodes are so delicious as well, because you've, you've now boxed, boxed us in story-wise to a, a brand new uh, threat and circumstances. And, uh, mm. but before I, before I get to uh, Revelations, uh, fail safe. Mm. So, <laughs> how many stories in in the universe have been done about asteroids coming and wiping us yes, out? Exactly. So what what um, what gave you ideas? You know, you know what what we haven't done is an asteroid story. What? Yeah. You know, and and to make it as unique as it was. You know, this is the point in in the series where Paul and I began to write uh, separately. So uh, up until this point, we had always written together in the room. And although, although we, we always shared um, uh, credit, um, 
he tended to write more of the um, rewrites, uncredited rewrites on other writers. And I tended to write more of the um, um, originals. Um, but at this point in the, uh, in the series, we were actually writing separately. So I believe I wrote Summit and he wrote Failsafe ah, okay. at this time. And then we ended up co-writing Revelations. But this is one of those instances where I remember we were actually writing two separate scripts just because, uh, I think it was just because we, the production machine had eaten up all of the existing scripts <laughs> and we just desperately needed uh, uh, scripts. And, well, in this example of uh, uh, the, um, it, you know what, failsafe. I don't, I don't know why I went to to failsafe first, but it's it's reversed on IMDb. Let me go back to Summit because Summit and Last Stand is where the idea of failsafe comes from, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. Anubis threatens to to uh, with the uh, the System Lords to destroy Earth before they reintegrate him into their group. Yeah, Summit and Last Stand. Yes. Uh, long standing for a long time. My favorite mm-hmm. uh, episodes of the show. Yeah, fantastic. You have the real chemical, the mm-hmm. Tokra, the, mm-hmm. the Gould system lords. You have, you have you returning. There's like five or six disparate elements in that first episode that come together yeah. and, dove, and are responsible. <laughs> Go ahead. Absolutely. No, those are the type of stories I love. The ones that you said with the disparate storylines that end up dovetailing in the end. Um, I mean, they're they're very tough to do, but if you pull them off, they are the most dramatically satisfying. I think for fandom as well, they seem, you know, they they always respond to the type of stories that seem to juggle a lot of um, uh, ongoing storylines and and find a way to sort of pay them off in in a satisfactory fashion. Well, you're really... You're, you're, it, it almost feels like with Summit and Last End, you are moving the whole freaking mythology forward in mm-hmm. uh, that one show. I mean, the, the Tolan are gone at this point. You know, like the Knox and I, I guess a, a few of the other, you know, like more incidental, frankly, races at this, mm-hmm. at this stage are, are not involved. But really all the big pieces of the show, um, except for maybe the Jaffa, are moved mm-hmm. forward in in those two episodes in, in yeah. important ways. And, and, and this is the episode where I believe we introduced Ball. Uh, and, and in a way, sort of that was, uh, the intent was to sort of kind of open up the, uh, I always love the system lords, um, but to kind of open things up in terms of, uh, uh, you know, system lords. And he was one of, I think about a half dozen system wars we, we introduced in, in, in the episode and Cliff really popped his performance, you know, and, and he just became in time, my favorite system lord to write for. What do you just think? Kind of that acerbic sense of humor. Yeah, exactly. What, mm-hmm. what do you think, what do you think is it that about his performance that, that really stands out? There's, there's a menace to him in that initial episode that carries into uh, abyss. Yeah. And there's a, it just, just he's just a a great character all around. Is that I wouldn't call necessarily call him a, like a mustache twirling villain per mm-hmm, se, mm-hmm. but you know uh, he does he does have that murky kind of I don't know what he's going to do next quality to him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you said, menace, but there's also something kind of humorous, you know, devilishly humorous about his performance. Which I always liked, and you know, we, we mentioned the fact that I always liked the humor in Stargate and the, way, the opportunity to take advantage of that. So, 
Um, he was a system lord who um, you could play with that that humor and then, you know, have him get his, you know, get decked by uh, by Carter or, uh, <laughs> you know, in a later episode. And, and uh, you know, like I said, I mean, uh, Cliff was, was amazing. I mean, obviously a terrific uh, actor, but he also was able to deliver on the humor, which was always important to me. What was it like getting to bring Osiris back? Uh, Anna Louise you know, Pollen, my favorite. Yes, actually, she made such an, a, an amazing villain. Um, I mean, the only issue, I think, was the fact that she was in the UK, so it made yeah. scheduling uh, difficult. Otherwise, I'm sure she would have been all over that that, that series. Uh, but uh, it was it was terrific to have her back, and then you know another fantastic performer. She has a layer that she's playing throughout that. Se- yeah, some of, some of the performer, some of the the performers behind the Gould really get to play up that that duality. If you look at Alexis Cruz, Alexis mm. is playing that uh, layer of. It's not always fully um, uh, uh, Chlorel. Scar is also kind of always there, pushing and pushing and pushing. Um, yeah. and I think part. I think part of part of what I'm I'm doing is you know ignoring the fact that in that case we happen to know both symbiote and host, and yeah. in in the case of Sarah Gardner and Osiris we do know symbiote and host. But when she talks about Daniel and when she you know interacts with him and and deals with him in that episode and in Revelations later when she finds out that he's dead, mm-hmm. she's stunned. You know? Yeah, and that's if it was just a mustache if it was just a uh, an evil, you know, villain. I want him to be dead. You know, it would be a completely mm-hmm. different response. But there's layers of subtext, of subtext yeah. in Osiris's in in Anna's Louise's performance. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, like I said, it, you know, there there's just you you write a role and you cast to the best of your ability. And every so often, you'll have a, a performance that just pops, and 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 you know that you know this is a character you want to bring back and. Uh, after uh, the curse, we were, you know we thought definitely she's a character. By the way, I you know I keep on saying the UK, but I, I think she's from New Zealand, or maybe she wasn't. I think she was in the UK. I think she was originally from New Zealand. Right. Um, I think that's correct. Yeah. 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 And uh, Dame Maggie Smith's uh, uh, daughter-in-law. <laughs> oh, really? I did not yeah. know that. Her husband is is Toby. Um, uh, I can't remember his his last name, but Maggie Smith's son. So he's, huh. he's the one. In, he's lost in space. He's. Uh, He's uh, uh, Robinson. Oh, so yeah, did not know that. Nice trivia, <laughs> right? Exactly. So, um, Revelations introduces the Asgard genetic flaw. Mm-hmm. Whose idea was this? Again, it was either Brad or Robert. And uh, again, I mean, you're, you're always looking to subvert audience expectations or kind of throw those curveballs at, at, you know, given our established mythology, given our established characters. And this is a huge one with regard to the Asgard. Um, uh, like, like I said, and, you know, it, it certainly was not Paul or, Paul or I, it, it was an idea that was so big and then would, and, and would have had such an impact that it, it really had to have been either uh, Brad or Robert. It's 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 a rare story that takes f- five years to unfold, you know, mm. from from this to the end of the series, yeah. and it's a tragic one. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it was it was it was tough losing those little guys in the end. And mm-hmm. I always wish that we had gone back to Janet Fra- Janet Frazier, <laughs> Terrell Rothery's uh, yeah. performance as Heimdall was was Heimdall a character that you in hindsight would have revisited if you had the chance. I think so. I mean, I always I like the, the Asgard Thor, obviously, but um, um, who's who's the Asgard we had on Atlantis? Uh, that was Hermiod. Yeah. Hermiod was erotic. He was a bit sassy, you know? He's kind of like, you know, passive aggressive. Um, and he was kind of fun to write for, but just in general. Yeah, I absolutely love the, uh, the Asgard. And, and... Trevor Duvall played Hermiod and Vasir. Yeah, Vasir you know, was cool too. I, I kind of like Vasir. Yeah, if, if, we, if we could have actually had. Yeah, actually, there's another one with kind of a sense of humor. I think he was. Uh, uh, what, what, what episodes do you pay? Was he in Ripple Effect? Yeah, he was. No? Uh-huh. Yeah, that was. Yeah, that was. I remember because uh, I I always tended to 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 write the sassy, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, the the sassy Asgard, and so Ripple Effect was mine. And I remember the uh, when he was like, "Yeah, well, you know, good luck," and uh, and just kind of beams out. Uh, so yeah, so. <laughs> That's right. Well, good luck yeah. to you all. Yeah, good uh, luck to you all. Yeah. But to be fair, he is there uh, when the Ori come through and, and start blowing everybody up. I think he does yeah. also duck out, too, because he, he right. survives yeah. for the season. There was something always tongue-in-cheek about uh, uh, the Asgard, especially when, when they start making, like, uh, start interacting with us more. There, that scene, um, I don't know if it's Rick or who it is. And you you have to wonder about these little timings on set because both both the the puppet in in revelations the case the mm-hmm. puppet the cg character mm-hmm. and then the live actors have to be in on it as well there's a there is a shot where rick holds out his hand and mm-hmm. and you see the you see uh heimdall look down at it and start holding her his hand out as well and it's a tight mm. on rick and his hand is like being shaken like this <laughs> as if as if the the performer off screen is actually doing that you know is that something that that rick was really good at about saying just like go with this you know just just bring it in tighter on me or was that little details like that ri- written into the script more often than no not? to be honest i mean there was what was written in the script but really when when you get to set it's you know, we defer to our visual effects supervisor. It's just sort of, and and the working in conjunction with the director. Each the director will be will be like, can we do this? Can we do that? And and uh, you know, accordingly. Um, of course, Rick's contribution had a lot to do with it. Um, you know, for instance, I, I, I remember sort of Robin Brown were always fond of saying that. Uh, you know, you you would establish our force fields, our invisible force fields, but we would know there was a force field because. Uh, we would script in a, a shot direction where the actor would run their hand across it and you would see it come up and be like, you know, $1,000. But of course, you would script like, <laughs> oh, you know, you would do it once. But Rick, of course, on the day would always be like, mm, be playing with it. <laughs> 2000, 3000, 4000. <laughs> and had, had a, a fair way of, um, uh, in, enjoying blowing through the uh, the the ammunition budget. Oh yeah, <laughs> as yeah well. of course. <laughs> you know, I can't imagine that that was cheap. That that it artillery. Yeah, I I'm just talking about it just recently. The fact that 
our uh, offices, the writer's offices, the production offices were in this fairly old brick building right above the set. And whenever they would fire off their, <laughs> their, their, their weapons, our offices would shake. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the, I, you know, uh, pleasant memories. I mean, at the time I'd be, I'd be like, Holy, you know, is it an earthquake? And then I realized, Oh, actually, no, they're downstairs. They're, uh, they're, they're shooting filming. up uh, the SGC. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh man. What, oh. Mm. you know, what, it would have to put a smile on your face. It's like, you know, uh, look where I'm getting to go to work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, it was never dull. Never uh, dull. Man. See, so season five, um, one, one of what, the best seasons of the show, you know, you're really at uh, a crossroads with um, a lot of the story elements. Um, the ancients, uh, really, mm-hmm. I think, uh, begin to to come into their own. You had a wonderful uh, uh, guest performance with Sean Tra- Sean Patrick Flannery, who unfortunately yeah. wasn't able to to join you again uh, for uh, season uh, nine. But there's some there's some good stories in this sophomore year yeah. of yours, my yeah. friend. I mean, you know, it's 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 been a while since I've reviewed, but I mean, I, I you know, in preparation, obviously for. For a little chat, I uh, kind of went over a few of uh, uh, the uh, the episodes for the season, and uh, it was yeah. I, I, I will have to say it was a strong season. It was like a fun season, great performances, and as you said, storylines that really you know push our you know kind of the various um, arcs forward, the, the, the relationship arcs, the the kind of the the story arcs. You mentioned the Asgard. Um, and the Goa world. I mean, I, you know, I, I love the fact, you know, season five was the introduction of Ball, who would, you know, come to be um, a, uh, you know, a fan favorite in time. It's just a good year. And, you know, it's, uh, I, I think one of the reasons that I think the, the franchise, that season is, I think, one of the reasons that I think the, the, the series itself remains uh, as strong as it does to this day. I yeah. have, and, and, yeah. Sorry, I was going to say one more topical point that someone pointed out to me was uh, season five was also the year of 2001 in which uh, the Ashen offer us a, uh, a nefarious vaccine. Uh, this at a time when, you know, uh, vaccines are, and, you know, are very much in the news. Uh, this is true. It's so kind of interesting, yeah. 2001 um, being the episode title of that season and mm-hmm. um, uh, the from it's a, it's the sequel to 2010 uh yeah. which was in the previous year September 11th uh you were in production on Menace uh, uh yes yes and there is that a pupper yes hang on just a second no you're fine <laughs> okay she is hi she just hi. Wants to say hi hello yes. she is uh hi She's she's looking for mom who's uh, in the other room uh, practicing her Chinese. Okay, you okay. <laughs> you could. I can't give you anything. Let's uh, just relax be a good here. little girl. Okay, old timer. All right, absolutely. Yes, those can be the best. So, um, when the attack had had started, uh, mm-hmm. were you uh, at the studio yet? No, I, um, I remember my sister calling me, and it was. I think it was like 7 a.m. 
uh, 7, 7.30 a.m. Uh, my time. And, and she was like, are you watching the news? And I was like, no. She's like, turn on the news. And that's how I learned. Uh, and that point, I mean, um, obviously production had sort of was uh, underway. And I came in and um, there were TVs or televisions in the, um, in the boardroom that we would sometimes use to sort of screen episodes and CNN was on. And anyone who was uh, basically not on set was um, basically glued to the TV. And I remember sort of Brad having the discussion and, and, and we ended up, I think we, we ended up shutting down that day. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was tough. And I remember actually sort of also the actress uh, who played Reese. Danielle Nicolette. Um, yeah, lovely, lovely, an amazing actress and just kind of a lovely person. Um, she was unable to fly back to L.A. just because, you know, all traffic was stopped. All Yeah, everything was grounded and, and, and having to sort of stay, uh, um, you know, those extra few days. But it was just, yeah, I mean, you know, that menace and uh, I think warrior. I think we were prepping the warrior. Um, but yeah, those, those were the two productions that I remember were, were, uh, um, you know, um, were kind of impacted at the time. I can't imagine how easy or hard that rather that would be to, cause I remember being in those offices and looking at that production board and just seeing everything lined up. Is it a situation where you just, Guys, it's one of these calls where we have to just call this day a wash and everything gets yeah. adjusted down one day or two days. Absolutely. That's what we have to do. I mean, usually there are contingencies in place, um, but, you know, productions are such like a well-oiled machine that, I mean, you've, you've, you've booked locations down the line and, and it's really like um, Jenga. You pull out that one piece, and and the entire structure is in danger of collapsing. So at that point, it's really up to your first AD uh, to reschedule, uh, juggle, and, and make sure everything works. Yeah, just a lot of phone calls. I bet. Yeah, a lot of phone yeah. calls. But I mean, at that point, you know, and it's like now. I, I'm sure is. <laughs> I mean, especially with the film and television industry, it makes September 11th look like a freaking square dance, mm-hmm. you know, with with what's happened with COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Christopher Judge talked about you know how how somber it was on set and how apparent yeah. it was fairly quickly that even if we shoot, we're probably not going to get anything usable. Yeah, so, exactly. A terrifying situation for everybody. Yeah. Uh, I have fan questions for you, but I, thank you, thank you for answering that. I've I've always been curious about about what was what it was like going on upstairs. So, um, Tracy uh, wanted to know. Uh, I'd like to know if there is any particular storyline you would like to have uh, expanded upon, given uh, a chance with any of the the Stargates moving forward. If there was any particular thread that you left that was like, you know what, if I if I could go back and. <laughs> There are so many of them. I mean, yeah. the obvious ones are, frankly, for me, uh, the destiny, um, picking things up for them on the other side of the uh, the great expanse. Uh, although, you know, of all the endings, even though I, I know fans felt like they were left hanging, I thought there was sort of an elegance to the universe ending in that, you know, that final shot of his destiny jumping, leaving us behind. And 
the fact that we don't know, I mean, in all likelihood, they're still in stasis and they'll outlive us all. <laughs> yeah, quite possibly. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I very much would have loved to see Atlantis get back to the Pegasus galaxy. That is actually one of the bigger ones for me. Um, you know, in terms of SG-1 and, and uh, storylines, um, you know, I always felt that there were uh, ball clones kicking around. So Really? Still? Character, yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, it would have been fun to sort of go back to, to him. Um, you mentioned the Asgard. And, you know, earlier we, we talked about the, the fact Van that Air. stays dead. Yeah, you know, there's still Asgard uh, bodies floating around in the universe. Yeah, yeah. Um, So, I mean, I mean, yeah, I I, I am sure I could go through, you know, and list like dozens of of storylines I would have loved to have seen. One of this is ultimately, I think, going to be a yes or no answer, uh, but I'm interested to see just just how far it was uh, developed. Um, The the story with uh, Stargate Extinction. it was suggested that it wasn't going to be a conclusion to the Wraith, but rather an expansion to their story. Um, is that, is that a, is that a fair? I just need uh, to sit down and read it. <laughs> yeah. Don't you have the script? I do, but I, I want to, I, I never touched it because I wanted to, I wanted to see it first. So, you know yeah. what? But I, I, part of the more that we talk about it, it's like the more I don't want to see it because, I don't want to be put in a position where I'm like, I am, I am against the audience and having more information. Well, <laughs> so. really, really the, you know, it was intended to either be a, a, a movie or the opening to, you know, two parter for season six. Um, okay. But really all it was was designed to bring uh, Atlantis from earth back, back to Pegasus. And they have an adventure along the way. And Todd is, happens to be along for the ride. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's not really, uh, ra- there's nothing really Wraith-specific outside of the Todd character. Okay. But you, know? so but that- you don't have to read it and, 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 you know, let me know what you think. You know, I think, yeah. <laughs> just dangle it in front of the audience. Yeah. You know, I really loved scene 32. <laughs> it just really hit home, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me rephrase this then. Mm-hmm. Uh was the end game for the Wraith, like the end game for the Gould and the Replicators and all that, ever d- determined in like an initial framework concept? Like, so that were Atlantis to ultimately end, mm-hmm. you knew where you were going to go with that species. Because even in, in, in my argument, when, when people say that they need more Atlantis, I mm-hmm. think largely what they're saying is that they want a conclusion to the biggest arc of that show, which mm-hmm. is you've got this vampiric... You know, life-sucking species running around out there in the Pegasus mm-hmm. galaxy, mm-hmm. and their story wasn't resolved. Did you? Did you have? Obviously, yeah, you I, had intent to resolve it, but did were the bones in place? Did you know I, what you were going to do? I, w- I would say Brad and Robert certainly, as the creators of the series, would have had an end game in in mind. But we were not actively working towards that conclusion because. In all honesty, I thought we were coming back for a sixth season. Yeah. Okay, that's fair. That that makes that makes a lot of sense. Ian wants to know, mm-hmm. um, how long did it take roughly 
depending, uh, I mean, if you if you like put all the seasons together and mm-hmm. and visual effects and everything else, how long did it take roughly from when your first draft was written to when you had a, a completed story ready for air? It really depended on um, on what point uh, in the production schedule and how quickly you had to write. But I would say. Usually it would take a couple of days. We, you know, you come up with an idea, you take a couple of days to spin. Um, you have maybe outside of a week to uh, write your outline. Usually it maybe takes a few days. Um, uh, and then once, you know, you, you'll do like a rewrite of, of the outline and get notes on that. That's maybe a couple of days. Um, first draft will take you two weeks approximately and then each subsequent draft, usually maybe a week or so. Uh, so I would say about a month and a half to two months from idea to shoot ready, um, you know, production white. Okay. And uh, how long would it take? Uh, let me let me see here. I, I want to try to figure out how I, how I want to phrase this. Um you know what? Let me come back to that. Okay. So Martin Lloyd, uh, Carlos yes. Takeshi wanted mm-hmm. to know, uh, is Martin Lloyd based on uh, traits of anyone in particular from inside your writer's room, a composite? Not really. To be honest with you, um, he was kind of more composite of, of kind of the more extreme um, – kind of fandom um, voices we would come across and, uh, and, and, you know, the, the, you know, the, he, he begins as kind of like this weird kind of conspiracy theorist and then, you know, kind of progresses into kind of a more lovable uh, uh, ally. Uh, but, you know, no, there was not, I mean, you would think that he would be one of us. Uh, but uh, in fact, no. When we were ready, it was not very much of Martin Lloyd in, uh, in in any of us, or vice versa. I remembered when I uh, wanted to ask you earlier the uh, w- when you were in production uh, for a show. At what point? Because I remember going and visiting uh, you guys in production. I think it was I think it was production of of season uh, ten. And, uh, and season three and Martin Garrow was in his office with his soundproof headphones on his, mm-hmm. his head down writing away. And it yeah. always made me wonder, um, you know, obviously you're not doing that 24 seven or at least, you know, you know, eight hours a day, uh, five days a week. At what point was the, uh, the creation process for an episode, the most intense, like when you're actually sitting down and hammering out that first draft script, um, where you know you had you looked at the forecast and was like, okay, on these episodes, I, I, or excuse me, on these days up ahead, I I am unreachable because I have to get the thing out. First of all, I have to correct you in in uh, in your uh, uh, saying uh, you're not working twenty four seven. In fact, <laughs> as writers, you're always writing. I mean, I would write when I'm driving. I would write when I was in the shower. I would write when my uh, significant other would be talking to me over dinner, which is why I uh, ended up getting divorced. Uh, oh so, so, you know, it, as a writer, you're always writing. And, you know, as I mentioned, we were always very careful about trying to get as much, as many scripts 
production ready before the first day of principal photography so that we were never scrambling. But of course, invariably, you know, the machine eats up those scripts and, and you have to get right down to it. And uh, um, I mean, I think there are varying degrees of intensity. There's the intensity of the writer's room, um, in which case basically you're dealing with disparate opinions and trying to sort of make a story work. Uh, there's the, you know, kind of the intensity of once you have the outline approved is getting that script written. And um, I mean, it, 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 you know, everyone has a different process. Martin, as you said, exactly would put on the, the, the soundproof uh, headphones and just get right down to it. I would always have to pace and people would notice, like I would always kind of, I, I would write a scene I would print it up and then I would pace the halls and go over the scene, you know, uh, revise it and then use that as almost kind of a, a kind of a running start into the next scene. Uh, Paul would kind of be kind of the same way as, as Martin. He would close the door in his office, uh, open up his bottle of scotch and, uh, and, <laughs> and just, work. you know, get to work. Jeez. I I just see Rob every once in a while and, and I got his office. He'd be just kind of staring at a screen and he basically, you know, suddenly just kind of a little flurry of, uh, you know, of tapping. And then it would kind of, you know, fade. And he would just kind of stare at the screen for a while. <laughs> just everyone had a different way. So did you all have your own signals one another and when you were not to be disturbed? Usually the closed door was, uh, was a good signal. Okay, I was yeah, ask that was something. the signal. Yeah. I don't know if I, could, if I could have my desk pointed so that I could see through... The, the into the hallway there. No, that's like, why you you had the um the blinds. The, oh, you the, did. The door would be closed. The blinds would be shut. Got it. So it. you were, yeah. for all intents and purposes, inaccessible in the except in the yeah. event of fire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, um, this is why we weren't on set a lot. I mean, a lot of people are like, "Wow, you you know, what's it like being on set?" There's hardly any time. There is no time because you're upstairs either writing scripts or you're prepping episodes or you're in editing, uh, you know, working on your producer's cut or you're watching mixes. So, I mean, that, you know, being on set would be, would have been a luxury and we, we try to do it as much as possible, which is why it was always embarrassing for me at a certain point to go down the set because, um, you know, even though I'd been with the show for multiple seasons, I didn't know all the crew member names. Because I just was never on set. I was the guy who, you know, would 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 be upstairs working all the time. You did what you had to do. Yeah. I think it's. I think it was you who mentioned over our dinner uh, a couple of years ago for the the dialing home interview that we did that any time you went down to the set, that's the amount of time that you would have to make up when you went back upstairs, because that's mm-hmm. it, it was like when you would go down to the set, it was almost like you were clocking out. Mm-hmm. But there were a certain number of hours to whatever you had to do every single day to get your work done. And there was just no other choice but to just look at it that way and, and get it out. Yeah, especially true when, you know, for, for a couple of years, we were we were producing 40 episodes of television, which is insane. Mind-boggling. Yeah. Crazy. And it, 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 to your earlier point about working 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. I th- I guess there's just like a drip in your brain that's that you can't shut off when uh you're involved in a a season of television because I know what it's like for me when I have deadlines. There is mm. there is a tightness in my gut that does not go away yeah. because there's an amount of 
of appropriate anxiety that's healthy to make sure mm-hmm. that you hit all your deadlines right. And I, su- I suspect that's – I mean, unless you're just like kind of a carefree person, it's like, you know what? I'm not going to worry about it. It'll get done one way or the other. Um, no. It's there, that's no, always it's, it's present exactly with you. That. It's exactly that. And, you know, as a writer, it's, it's particularly frustrating – because you can't really take time off. I mean, as you said, if, if, if you don't care, you can, you can take time off. But if you're working under a looming deadline, you could be doing something completely different. Like I said, you know, driving your car or, or out for a walk or out shopping. And you're, you know, invariably running dialogue in your head. And, and that's how I write. I, I will run dialogue in my head and, and the scene will take shape as a result of the back and forth of that dialogue. Um, and you can do that anywhere. You can do that lying in bed at 3 a.m. Uh, yeah, we're always having conversations with ourselves. Yes. It's, yeah. it's a great way to try out, you know, a scene. Yeah. In fact, actually, that's my, my, uh, my wife, uh, wife last night. I came in, was, was like, I, I was in the shower, and she was in, in, in the bedroom, and she was like, did you just, did you say something to me while you were in the shower? I'm like, actually, no, I was writing dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> and not, maybe not in my head out loud. Sometimes that will happen. Yusufi wants to know, uh, Joe, when can we expect another sci-fi show from you? Uh, hopefully sooner than later. I have actually two sci-fi shows, two time travel sci-fi shows. One of them, um, you know, I keep mentioning if you liked Window of Opportunity and if you watch Dark Matter, All the Time in the World, um, mm-hmm. uh, Isn't That a Paradox? Kind of the funny sci-fi. Timescape is a show for you. And then I'm working on another one with uh, the you know, executive producer, of uh, the outpost, um, uh, uh, Doug Pasco and uh, we and 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 the amazing Kristen uh, Menti, uh, we have developed a, a time travel series that we were going to go out with in October, but because Hollywood shut down, uh, we we're going to have to push it off till January. So I'm working on that. Um, I actually am working on two major sci-fi shows. Um, I've actually been. Uh, uh, hired it's actually it's contract work it's not just a uh me writing uh but um one crazy uh sci-fi series that that combines uh, uh gaming um uh anime uh k-pop and science fiction so that's what i'm working on now and i've got a near future android murder mystery that is also next up on tap uh i've got a, uh, a really fun uh, adaptation of a comic book with one of the major comic book publishers that um, I've been working on for a while. I've got a um, something in the fantasy realm, which is a, a, a terrific book series that I can't say now because I haven't announced it publicly yet, but I had a conversation with the author last week and he's amazing and the books are amazing. And it's a very unique fantasy series that I've mentioned on my blog, uh, I think more than once. So you can Check out my blog JosephMalazzi.com. Uh, JosephMalazzi.com. Uh, and um, actually, there's two comic book properties. One of them is a sci-fi property that I'm in talks with. So I've got like a, a kind of a lot going on. Oh, and also, it's just so crazy. You know, I mentioned the fact that it seems like I got a lot in the works, and I do, but you never know what's going to go. So, um, which is why you have to have all these balls in the air. Um, and there was a script I wrote. Uh, several years ago that um, I just kind of sent out on a lark a couple of months ago. I didn't think anything would come of it. And I just got an email uh, earlier this week that said that was from a streamer that was like, Hey, we're interested. 
you know, so to talk about this. And that one is a, a small town uh, supernatural mystery series. Uh, so, I mean, who knows what's going to go? My, 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 you know, you always have your favorites. My, my always, you know, heart is with sci-fi, especially the uh, kind of more humorous sci-fi. So uh, Timescape is, is number one on my list, but who knows what, what, what will happen. So hopefully sooner than later, I would say. So, By 2021, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, we'll be, I'll be in a writer's room working on something. My goodness, man. The, the bandwidth that it must take to manage the projects that you just said. I mean, there was like five, six or seven of them. I, how, do you sleep? Yeah. how do you sleep? I, I mean, know, obviously I you're not working full bore on all of them simultaneously. There, there are various stages of. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. And the fact that, you know, whenever I talk about this, I actually, I can feel the anxiety rising in me because as, as I'm talking about this, I'm like, I really should be getting work, more work done on that pilot script, for instance. <laughs> Instead, I'm stuck with Dave. <laughs> well, no, I'm not stuck with, but honestly, not, not, not when I'm not stuck with you, I'm basically uh, researching my fantasy football or oh, right. uh, checking out the new sort of uh, Korean horror series on Netflix I, I do have to say, it, with modern uh, uh, streaming and everything else, there's there, there is a, there is definitely a situation I think where there is uh, we have great more uh, quantity than quality, but at the same mm-hmm. time, these these longer form uh, novel length uh, series that that are that are coming out now are just I mean, yeah. some of the some of the best entertainment that's ever been devised. Yeah, yeah, it really feels that way. So, um, so uh, Chronos Chiron. Back in March, mm-hmm. Joe gave out a paper of how they could bring back Dr. Weir, but never got a chance. Can, can you elaborate on this a little bit more? Is this, does oh, this, so this that, that was with... the scene. Uh, so, for, you know, for, for uh, San Diego Comic-Con, not the last one was the one before that wasn't the last one. Like I said, it, the, the last, last live one. one. Two years ago. Yeah. Two years ago. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we ended up doing a reading of uh, Stargate, excerpts from the Stargate Extinction script, the Stargate Atlantis, uh, what have been the Stargate Atlantis movie. And, you know, ever since we lost Weir, Elizabeth Weir, presumably lost Weir, in my mind, she was not dead, even though um, the assurance basically told Shepard, oh, we, we killed her. I mean, are you going to take the word of, of, of your enemy? Of course, they're not going to kill her. She's like a, like a, a font of, of, of information. Mm-hmm. So they would have kept her in stasis on ice and i always thought well how would i bring her back and what i ended up doing was writing the scene uh for san diego comic-con the scene that i would have written to bring weir back and uh and and so that's that's what he got and i I posted it on my blog somewhere so you're gonna have to look that up as well well you know i just because i remember being there and, and hearing that it's like you know as far as i'm concerned this is canon like full stop. Mm-hmm. That's it. She's she she persists. Her her human form persists in the universe. Right. It was too solid a character to just wipe out. Right. So, uh, the time prophet. Uh, the in jokes about MacGyver uh, in Stargate. Uh, did Rick have any input on putting those in, or did he just absolutely? I absolutely. He had no input whatsoever <laughs> putting those in. In fact, I don't know if he didn't like them. To be honest <laughs> I was with you, ask. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Who came up Redux? Who came up with Grell's line uh, at the end? And what's your take on it? So I believe they're referring to uh, two hundred. He, yeah, he yeah. has the quote from Isaac Asimov. Yes, that that was pure Brad, and 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 you can tell it's Brad because Brad is 
he does not only write science fiction, but he reads science fiction and, you know, obviously contemporary, but the classics as well, Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke. And, and I think, you know, we recently talked about uh, um, Larry Niven and, mm. and, and Jerry Purnell. So yes, that was, uh, it, you know, absolutely a Brad Wright line. Kevin Leach, um, Sean Patrick Flannery's uh, character, um, uh, Orlin, was it a scheduling conflict that, that he didn't return for, for season 10? Yeah, I believe was it was. just not interested? No, no, I believe it was a scheduling conflict. Okay. Yeah. Uh, let me see here. E.T., E space T.I. Mm-hmm. Joe, what uh, are your tips for emerging sci-fi writers for getting a foot in the door into a writer's room as an assistant or something like that with the view of uh, gradually uh, moving up the ranks? Yeah. Um, you know, if you, if you haven't had anything uh, produced before, yeah, uh, being an assistant would, would, would be the best way to get your foot in the door. Uh, you know, there are the trades that, that list what productions are gearing up. Um, so, you know, reach out to those productions, see if you can, you know, land your uh, a position as, a, as, as an assistant or maybe as, you know, even sort of front office staff. Um, for me, with the, the advice I give uh, first-time writers is to follow the path I took, which is kind of an atypical, an atypical path in that um, I actually got my foot in the door in animation writing. Uh, and animation uh, companies tend to be more receptive of new writers. You get mm-hmm. your foot in the door, you get to hone your craft, you get paid to doing it, mm-hmm. and then you can make the transition from animation to live action, which, which is what I did. I did we, we, Paul and I, we, we yeah, transitioned from writing for animation to writing for teen, uh, um, uh, live action teen sitcom to writing one hour action adventure to ultimately uh, landing on Stargate and working our way up. So the, there are the two ways to go about it. Also make sure you have uh, a great s- script. Uh, I would s- suggest two scripts, one spec script, which is obviously a, a script based on a, uh, an existing series to b- demonstrate your ability to capture the tone and the voices of, 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 of show uh, and also an original pilot. Wow. Man, thank you for that clarification. Yeah. That's, that's, you know, the, it's, it's easy to look back, you know, and go, this is my story, but mm-hmm. this, this is a process that took years, you know, just like yeah. any, any, uh, typical journey where you have the number of credits that you do and you have to be willing to go on that journey as well and yeah. climb that mountain starting at the bottom. Yeah. So Redux wanted to know where's the SG one and SGU season two Blu-rays. This is, this is an MGM question. Yeah. People ask me that all the time and I always tell them this is a studio question. Sadly, I have nothing to do with that. Yeah. Well, SGU is at least available in, in high definition on, on the streaming sites. Uh, SG one, there is a Blu-ray that actually just came out and Hmm. it is my understanding that it is legitimate, but it is, it is an HD up res. Uh, I will post the link to it in the blog, or excuse me, in the YouTube link, so you guys can take a look at it for yourself. I mean, it's, it's obviously not what I would have wanted, which would have been a you know a, a full uh, restoration. Yeah, um, I mean, I have to say, um, you know, I'm pretty active on the uh, Stargate subreddit, uh, occasionally posting behind the scenes photos, and one of the fans had upresed one of the one of the uh, uh, episodes, one of the SG1 episodes, and it looked 
amazing. Really? Yes. Yes. Yeah. It looked really good. Yeah. If 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 a lot of these studios don't don't get in the, in um, on board, the, the fans are going to start ahead of them. You know, yeah. Have you seen yeah. the uh, uh, the Rogue One uh, deep fakes? Where, where the deepfake technology was used instead of the CG that was adapted for Peter Cushing and for um, no. uh, Carrie Fisher. No. They look better than the multi-million dollar CG products. Wow. Hmm. It's it's spooky how you could just apply it, this software. Yes, And it's it is better spooky. than what came out four years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Jeez. Uh, Matthew Hall, thank you for writing the best show ever. You have helped many people and are very appreciated by us all. <laughs> <laughs> Helping to write the best show ever. Thank you. Akos Thomas Navaki. Uh, mm-hmm. Why was the Gould Shiva changed in the script of Summit? I didn't, I wasn't aware of that. Is that true? Why was she changed? Shiva. The Gould Shiva. was she changed to Kali? Was it changed to Kali? Okay. Maybe because Shiva wasn't, I thought Shiva was kind of, benevolent. Well, I think that's why maybe we did it because okay. Kali was a, a better, better bad thing. Kali Shiva. was definitely a bad for yeah. sure. Yeah. The time profit. Joe, how do you keep writing without repeating yourself? Um, well, that's a good question. I, I, I don't know how I managed to do it. I don't know. I mean, I just, <laughs> I, uh, I, I, my, my mother says I am blessed with uh, original ideas uh, and, and really what it comes down to is the characters, right? I mean, I always think back to window of opportunity when we first pitched window of opportunity and Rob Cooper was like, no, change it to this, change it to this, change it to this. And, and ultimately, you know, I ended up saying, well, you, you just want us to write uh, uh, Groundhog Day. And he's like, yeah. Yeah, just write it. And, and so you don't want me like, to do any work. Yeah, we can't write Groundhog Day, but it became a fan favorite because you know, it was less to do with the premise. I mean, the premise was great, but it was because it was our characters. And we, you can be original if your characters are original because you're always writing for unique voices. Like on Dark Matter, I ended up doing a time loop episode and everybody's done time loop episodes, but it ended up again being a fan favorite because it was unique to our characters, to those characters. Yeah. So at a certain point, um, you just kind of have to accept the fact that there are only like nine or 10 story ideas in existence and make the best darn show that you can with the yeah. best darn characters that you have. Yeah, I think so. I want to say it was heavy. Maybe it was someone, one, one of the greats, once said that there are maybe a half dozen stories out there and you just have to sort of, it's, it's all a variation of, of these handful of stories. And I remember, uh, I think in season five of Stargate, Paul and I were interviewed and Paul said they're pretty much the same thing. Um, there's only, you know, X amount, a set amount of story. Mm-hmm. Every story is being told. And um, the fans went berserk when they read that article but they're, because they were like, you know, you're saying that there's no original stories and that's not, not true. what they're saying. Basically, well, well, they yeah, that's not what he's to, saying. Well, actually, they, they, for some reason, the quote was attributed to me. So I was the one who got raked over the coals. And I was like, well... I didn't see it, but regardless, it is true. <laughs> we have had long conversations about how um, you know, the, fandom is is a beast with many, many heads. Most most of those heads, you know, are are 
cool and appreciative of mm-hmm. of the content and are thankful to have access uh, to you who are willing to go in to the dens where those beasts mm-hmm. reside. And every once in a while, you come across some who think that when you're shooting at a fan, you're shooting at them. So okay. <laughs> <laughs> that is yeah. That, that was another one I was going to bring up. Homecoming yeah, I, season I seven. Okay, all right. We'll hold I'll off. never forget that. Yeah. I remember, like that's that's not true. Yeah. The fact that we would go through all the trouble of okay, we got to put the fan in the scene, the mechanical fan in the scene. We have to have the butt bullet bounce off it. So that, yeah. uh, Joe, it's been a pleasure to have you back. Oh, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. It means so much to me. Thank you for putting up with my my time change shenanigans and everything else. This will not happen again. I swear. No. <laughs> We got a dino. It was great. I look forward to the next one. You have a good holiday. We'll see you in 2021, okay? All right. Thank you so much, sir. Sounds good. Be well. (laughs) Bye-bye. Joseph Malatz, everyone. On Dial the Gate. Questions for me. Ian. I know that one goal of Dial the Gate is to be an oral history of Stargate. That is still um, the intent here. To that effect, I'd love to see James Robbins, Mark Savella on the show, Brad Rines, and Rick Martin, editors. Are these folks people you'd be interested in having on? Absolutely. James Robbins, I messaged him a month and a half ago, and I have not heard back. So if anyone out there uh, is in connection with uh, production designer uh, James Robbins, I would I would kill to have him on the show. It would be an absolute pleasure. We would have a lot to talk about. Uh, Mark Savella is someone that I would love to have on in, in the very near future as well. Um, uh, Brad Rines and Rick Martin. I do. I, I really want to do like an editor panel as well as like a director panel uh, for sure. Uh, Watcher652vids. Why don't you have a Stargate that lights up? This is in reaction to your enterprise. I would love to have a Stargate that lights up. Um I just don't have one. So th- there was someone who put out the 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 SGU Stargate is is my favorite gate. It's elegant. It's the 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 lines are beautiful. The chevrons are white. Um, there was one that someone put out with uh, uh, one that actually spins, and I would love just a static one that lights up and just sits on a base. Um, Claire Burr wondering about a uh, Dial the Gate Discord server chat. Claire asked and answered. So Claire and I are working on that. I sent her an email. So a Dial the Gate Discord chat uh, server may um, be in the cards here. Uh, let me see here. Yeah, Matthew Hall asked uh, for uh, Joe to just uh, uh, let me see here. Thank you for writing the best show ever. So we already answered that. Kevin Leach. How did you get into doing Stargate interviews in the first place? I made a phone call, and that was between season seven and eight. I reached out to Amanda Tapping's agent and asked her to take my call. And within like a week or two, we had an audio interview and posted it up on GateWorld. And that is uh, my first uh, or second or third interview uh, for for GateWorld. So that's that that was really um, that was really the turning point. And so it was just a matter of uh, continuing to do that uh, since and making connections with these these people and raising GateWorld's profile and moving everything forward. So question for David. Do you have any of Don's artwork? I don't. I, 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 don't, I, I don't have anything that, that Don made, unfortunately. I do have um, 
I do have General Hammond's wedding ring uh, from his uh, from his uh, uh, deceased wife uh, who who died of who died of cancer. So that's that's upstairs and that's in my safe. So that that's like my I think that's my only piece of Don that I have is is uh, the the wedding ring that that he wore during production. Um, Don's artwork is available at donsdavis.ca. And uh, while we're mentioning websites, Joseph Malazzi's uh, website is at J-O-S-E-P-H-M-A-L-L-O-Z-Z-I.com. That's where his blog is uh, posted. We have a sponsor. Dial the Gate has partnered with 3D Tech Pro for the month of December to give you a chance to get your very own desktop Stargate and customized ancient keychain. To enter to win these items, you need to use a desktop or a laptop computer and visit dialthegate.com. Scroll down to submit trivia questions. Your trivia may be used in a future episode of Dial the Gate, either for our monthly trivia night or for a special guest to ask me in a round of trivia. There's three slots for trivia, one easy, one medium, and one hard. Only one needs to be filled in. But you're more than welcome to submit up to three. Please note the submission form does not currently work on mobile devices. Your trivia must be received before January 1st, 2021. If you're the lucky winner, I'll be notifying you via your email right after the start of the new year to get your address and what word you want on your ancient keychain. Be sure to check out our partner's website for more Stargate-related merchandise at 3dtech.pro. And I think that I have artwork as well before we let you guys go. I do indeed. This is from guest artist David SD. And it is a 3D rendering of the Goalhold space station from the Hasara system in Summit and Last Stand. And it's, it's just, it's, it's labeled Gold Space Station, work in progress. David SD said, I'm still alive and currently I'm working on a Gold Space Station. This is a few years old that this was posted. The one seen in the episode Summit almost finished the modeling part. This is amazing work. And that's something that I would love to be able to, uh, a model that I would love to have behind me sitting on some kind of like special like stand or whatever to keep it straight. But it's one of the coolest builds in the entire franchise. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, before I let you go, uh, one last thing. If you like what you've seen in this episode, I would appreciate it if you click that like button. It really makes a difference with YouTube's algorithm and will definitely help the show grow its audience. Please also consider sharing this video with a Stargate friend. And if you want to get notified about future episodes, click the subscribe icon. If you plan to watch live, I recommend giving the bell icon a click so you'll be the first to know of any schedule changes, which will happen all the time, like it did today, except for today it was my fault, not Joe's. And bear in mind, clips from this live stream will be released over the course of the next several days and weeks on Dial the Gate and GateWorld.net's YouTube channels. We have two more shows coming up for you tomorrow. And the first one is going to be actor David Hewlett, Rodney McKay himself. And that is scheduled for 11 a.m. Pacific Time, followed by Jacqueline Samuda at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, near T. So come with your questions. And we will be having them answer them. So thank you so much for tuning in. My name is David Reed, and we will be seeing you on the other side. Dial the Gate is hosted and executive produced by David Reed. The producer is Darren Sumner, co-produced by Linda Fury. The composer is Neil Acree. Animations by Bryce Ors. The production assistant is Jennifer Kirby. 
Moderators include Summer Roy, Keith Homel, Tracy Noller, Jeremy Heiner, Reese M., and Anthony Rowling. Logo designed by Deborah J. Bell. Additional effects by Thomas Tots, with contributions by model makers Chris Baker, Stephen Barr, Kevin Zabo, and Tom Paris. The archivists are Linda Fury, Zachary Adams, and Fred Eric Marcoux. For general inquiries for submissions, please contact us at dialthegateshow at gmail.com. Visit our website for the upcoming schedule, as well as an archive of our past episodes at dialthegate.com. Thank you.